When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Today on the program, my guest is Jerry Stahl, author of a new memoir called 999. The journalism that I have always done, it's gonzo in the sense that I, I would put myself in these horrific situations like nude singles retreat at Elysium in Topanga where you have like the naked buffet where like your genitalia are just gently brushing the chicken salad, you know? <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I've done this. The difference is back then I was loaded, now I'm dead clean. So it's just a way of putting yourself in extremis, which I think somehow adds to the immediacy of the event. You know, if the audience, God bless them, can sort of feel something of what I was going through, then I've kind of done my job. All right. That was Jerry Stahl. His new memoir is out on Akashic Press. It is called 999, One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. And just for the sake of clarity, the title of the book, 999, that's the German spelling, N-E-I-N, which uh, when translated is not the number nine, it's the word no, N-O which, you know, probably that was clear to most of you, but just in case it wasn't. This is Jerry Stahl's second time on The Other People Show. We first spoke more than a decade ago, if you can believe that, in June of 2012, episode 75. So it was great to get a chance to see Jerry again and to catch up and to talk about his fine new book, which was born of considerable anguish, (laughs) personal and and professional strife. And I don't mean to laugh, but it's a funny book. Jerry writes with bracing candor and biting wit about, among other things, being sober, going through divorce, being on the skids professionally, being a father of a young child, 
at a more advanced stage of life, grieving the loss of a relationship, battling with depression, and just trying to get through life with some dignity and a sense of humor intact. So basically, faced with a litany of difficulties, Jerry did what any rational, distinguished, Jewish gentleman would do. He got on an airplane, he flew over to Europe, and he went on a Holocaust bus tour. I think he was on assignment for uh, Vice Magazine, and then subsequently turned the adventure into this new book, a memoir and a travelogue called 999. My conversation with Jerry is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by The Feminist Press, publisher of a new story collection by Luke Danny Blue called Pretend It's My Body. This is Luke's debut. It is informed by their experiences in and between genders. Pretend It's My Body is a debut story collection that deftly blurs fantasy and reality. I feel like I often say the word deftly on this show, but it's the truth. Pretend It's My Body deftly blurs fantasy and reality, excavating new meanings from our varied dysphorias. Luke Danny Blue is inviting the reader into a world of outlier lives made central and magical thinking made real. This is a surreal, darkly humorous, and always deeply felt collection. Pretend It's My Body is bound together by the act of searching for a spark of recognition and a story of one's own. That's Pretend It's My Body, the debut story collection by Luke Danny Blue, available now from the Feminist Press. All right, so a quick reminder that I do a weekly email newsletter. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, just go to this podcast's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter over at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. I should also uh, remind you that you can get other people gear, t-shirts, sweatshirts, all of that stuff. I think you can even get phone cases now (laughs) Uh, if you're into it. Just visit otherppl.com and click on get merchandise or you scroll down, you'll see the t-shirt. And I just want to say, no bullshit, these are really good t-shirts. They really are. You know how there are like like good t-shirts and bad t-shirts and these are good ones. They're soft. They fit well, they wash well. I genuinely like them. So if you want some other people merchandise, this is your chance. This is your opportunity. Just go to otherppl.com. All right, so my guest once again is Jerry Stoll. His new memoir, 999, is available now from Akashic Books. Jerry Stoll has published, I believe, 10 books now, including the best-selling memoir, Permanent Midnight, which was made into a movie starring Ben Stiller. His other books include the essay collection, OG Dad, and the novels, Painkillers, I Fatty, 
perv, plain clothes naked, happy mutant baby pills, and bad sex on speed. Jerry's writing has appeared all over the place in Esquire, Vice, The Believer, Tin House, The New York Times, and elsewhere. He has also written extensively for film and television. He wrote uh, the HBO, I think it was a limited series, or a movie, Hemingway and Gellhorn. That earned him a Writers Guild Award nomination. He wrote Bad Boys 2, and he wrote uh, the cult classic Dr. Caligari. His television credits include the show Marin, the one uh, you know starring Mark Marin. Uh, he also wrote on CSI, and he wrote for Escape at Danamora, for which he received an Emmy nomination. So, quite a career, and now here he is celebrating the publication of this new memoir. I'm very lucky to have had the chance to talk with Jerry, and I'm pleased to share the conversation with you all right now. Here he is, folks. This is Jerry Stahl, and his new memoir, One More Time, is called 999. I've never been a particularly Jewy Jew, so to speak. But the older I get, the more this history, particularly of, of Nazism and the Third Reich and the Holocaust, has an immediacy. And it, and it sort of calls to mind something my grandfather, who ducked out of Poland to avoid the Tsar's army as like a 17-year-old. If you ever forget you're a Jew, a Gentile will remind you. And in these times we live in now, where it's like safe for people to outwardly dis Jews, blacks, gays, whatever, and it's completely fine now, thanks to Trump, I feel there's a certain more immediacy that kicked my fascination into high gear. So I want to ask you about Trump, who does feature in the book, and you do a great job of skewering him, because for a Jewish person with an interest in Third Reich history and an interest in Third Reich history that's like escalating as the days go by, I think that this era would bring an immediacy to it and would bring it into focus and would make it re I mean, it had this function for me and I'm not Jewish, you know, is that yeah. it, it made the abstractions or the abstract parts of the Holocaust and that period in world history uh, a lot less abstract. And I think yeah. it's that question of, well, how the hell did this happen? You know, it was it could be easy, I think, for Americans of a certain generation and age, or many of us really across generations, to look back at that era and be like, ah, like that's crazy. How did that many Germans go along with such insanity? Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, 2016 happens, and the Trump presidency happens, and for me, it was like, well, this is how it happens, you know? Yeah. It, it, the interesting thing is, I, I thought I was writing a book about the past. And it felt like I was visiting the future, you know. And I visited the uh, world of concentration camps, et cetera, in, in 2016, just as Trump was ascendant. But I didn't write the book to, until 2021 because uh, I, I, I just couldn't get it right. So I had to scrap a lot of those hot Trump takes because by 2021, a lot of them were pretty stale. But the main one being, which I didn't realize, is that Hitler was an ass clown too, you know? Nobody took him seriously. There are 
endless magazines parodying him, showing him with beards, funny hats, in diapers, just tearing him to shit. And then you realize, yeah, and he's the guy who ended up getting in power and destroying all the people who tore him apart on the way up. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. And I think sometimes people will say that it's not you know it's not a an accurate comparison to compare trump to hitler because trump didn't initiate a holocaust for example though i guess i don't know ripping kids from their parents arms at the border and putting them in cages and stuff comes uncomfortably close for me but i will concede that at a, at, at the level of scale it didn't get that to that uh, extreme not but, yet but it certainly feels like we're headed in that direction you know? And, you know, with Ron DeSantis and company sort of picking up the slack, you know, if Trump doesn't, you know, claw his way back to avoid prosecution, there's plenty of other Republicans. The guy running for governor in Pennsylvania, yeah, who comes out and says in a speech, "I don't want the Jewish vote." Right. You know, straight up pandering in such a naked way now because that's what it takes, and everybody tries to sort of out Trump everybody else. So yeah. There's no Holocaust, but it's not a huge leap. No, and a lot of the rhetoric and the drum beats, and I mean, you could say dog whistles, but what we're talking about right here is just people saying the quiet part out loud. It's like the dog whistles have been dispensed with, and they're just no saying. No dog whistles, yeah. All the dogs are running because they've heard the scream that right. took, you know, took over from the whistle. Well, it uh, it's unsettling, and this is a book that, uh, you know, it's, it feels like you wrote it during the pandemic. You just said you wrote it I in did, 20, the tw- pandemic book. Okay. Yeah. So 2021, though the trip took place in, in 2016 and yeah. you set out, um, you know, in the wake of a divorce, job prospects were less than great. You were dealing with depression, you know, that I think was related to both, but has been with you for all your life, really. It's something that you struggle with, that a lot of people struggle with. And it feels like a book that was written f- from a place of like, I don't know, there's a fearlessness to it. And I also found myself wondering, and I guess the question is answered by the timeline we just discussed, whether you could write a book about this subject matter while you're still in a state of acute depression? Like, do you think that you had to get to a better place or a clearer place before you could see this material clearly, before you could write about it? It it seems like a hard thing to write about when you're in it. Well, I wish I could say that I wrote this book and miraculously, like teenage acne, you know, my psycho-emotional state cleared up. But, you know, I, I was just born fucking depressed. I come from a long line of suicides, an electroshock aficionados, <laughs> not to brag. And, uh, you know, it's still there. And, you know, I think for me, I find that depression, and if you plummet all the way down, you know, there, there, there is a kind of truth there. And fearlessness is a beautiful way to put it. But it, there's also a kind of idiocy where you just like, I need to write this. I'm not thinking about the uh, consequences. And uh, there's a great Hubert Selby line where he, he describes every time he writes a book, he's like a scream looking for a mouth. And that is how this book felt. Yeah, no, I, I think that was, that was the feeling that I got. And I was trying to sum it up to myself 
like the style, like the voice and the comedic style of the book in particular. And I was like, this is like neurotic maximalism. Like, <laughs> I, I mean this. I the mean this. thing anyone has ever said to me. <laughs> no, but I was just. Wow. I really. Uh, That's admi- a blurb I'm going with. Well, I admire, I admire it because what it did for me as a reader is it would take you to a certain place and you would think, wow, this is as far as he can go. But then you would go farther. And you did it over and over again. Or you just kept burrowing down and finding the, like, like a joke almost everywhere. And there were multiple occasions in this book which distinguishes it where I laughed out loud, which I don't often do when reading and which I always really value. But it was a kind of laughter where it wasn't like, ha, 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 ha. It was more like, oh, like... <laughs> It, it's it's like wincing laughter gets a little bit closer because it's laughter born of real pain. It's a dark humor, but it's also like me recognizing my own darkness. Like I have some depressive tendencies. I think a lot of writers do. And it was kind of like that recognition and that admiration, like, Ooh, touche, Jerry. <laughs> like, you know, like, well done, sir. Well, you know, thank you. Thank yeah. You. So uh, not calculated, but there it is. So thank- 2016, September, you embark, and I'd like to hear you just describe the trip that you took. Like, what was this tour? This tour was my way of getting a trip to Europe, in this case, subsidized by originally by Vice Magazine for a six-part series, very different from the book. They didn't want anything personal. And what it was, essentially, was three concentration camps plus all the all the holocaust hotspots uh in between by bus with perfect strangers many of whom i'm just going to throw out there had literally never seen a jew (laughs) so (laughs) i was that guy you know there was one other jewish fella an older guy actually a a trump loving republican octogenarian so there's that we kind of became pals and so two things are at work one you're visiting this terrain of horror and sadness and almost incomprehensible despair and history but on the other what was really terrifying for me was having to ride on a fucking bus with a bunch of strangers i mean i I have bus trauma from high school you know just from having my ass kicked. But what prepared me in a way, as a youngster, I was the only Jew in like a class of like 800 at my at my grade school and was routinely beat up for killing Jesus, which I must have done in a blackout <laughs> at the age of five because of memory. So somehow this concatenation of events that I, I managed to sort of put together and take this trip became the perfect storm, pardon that lame-ass cliche, of uh, torment and revelation. Did you know that it was a book, that you were working on a book when you set out, or was it just like, I'm going to do this magazine gig and I'm going to take the trip? No, I thought that there was a book in there. You know, I wanted to find a way, but, you know, I, the journalism that I have always done, it, it's, it's, it's gonzo in the sense that I, I would put myself in these horrific situations, like, nude singles retreat at Elysium in Topanga where you have like the naked buffet where like your genitalia are just gently brushing the chicken salad, you know? (laughs) And you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I've done this. Uh, The difference is back then I was loaded, now I'm dead clean. 
So it's just a way of putting yourself in extremis, which I think somehow adds to the immediacy of the event. You know, if the audience, God bless them, can sort of feel something of what I was going through, then I've kind of done my job. Yeah, I mean, like bus travel with a group of strangers is a funny circumstance to put yourself into. And I want for the benefit of listeners just to kind of go through the roster of your travel companions. I will give you their names and maybe you can give like a thumbnail. Sure. So there is uh, the retired school teachers from Omaha. Yeah. Lovely ladies, both of whom, you know, you know, they just did a lot of vicious teachers lounge time, (laughs) you know, in their day. Uh, And one of whom had a meth addicted daughter who had picked her face the size of a quarter, a giant hole in their face, which she told me about. And what needs to be said is when you're the writer, it's like being a leper because you're outside the tribe. So people can tell you anything. It's like Canterbury Tales if Chaucer threw a leper in there (laughs) who everybody could talk to. So I think think that was like Madge and, I don't know, Babs. Some ridiculously you can't make these names up kind of names, but because I have no memory, I cannot tell you exactly what they were. Okay, and then we have uh, Dozer Bob, the ex-rugby player from Sydney. Yeah, Dozer Bob, fascinating guy, wanted to give himself a trip because he'd just gotten divorced because he told me this brutal story about how his wife never wanted to have people over and he was very lonely. And then he gets divorced and, you know, she, she throws him out and he's like, why? And she's like, because we never have people over. And, he, <laughs> and and he's confiding to me woefully that like, well, I thought that's what she wanted. You know, so just this, I knew the guy like five minutes and I'm ready to start crying. You know, so that was Dozer. Okay, so Dozer, Bob, and then there's Mariko, the uh, judge on the Third Circuit and her partner, Don. And we should say, I'm sure you're probably going to bring it up, but uh, your late father was on the Third Circuit, correct? Yeah, what, what are the odds? Yeah. yeah, she was a secretary uh, in the office uh, on the Third uh, Circuit of Appeals, which is just below the Supreme Court, which my father, God bless him, made his way to dream come true, whereupon he promptly, the age of 49, uh, did the old routine of going into the garage, closing the door, and turning on the engine. Jeez. Which, just a tip. You really can't do that with unleaded gas. So if anybody is depressed and wants to try that now, all you're going to get is a headache and a walk of shame in the morning when you have to like toodle back into your kitchen. (laughs) Amid clouds of whatever. Yeah, clouds of fumes. (laughs) So yeah, so she, but didn't know my old man because he served so briefly that he didn't, he didn't make an impression because he wasn't there that long before he checked himself out. Okay, and she and we should. End, uh, I think it's worth noting too that Marika was the only person of color on this tour. There was a very, it was a very white group. Oh, beyond white, yeah. She was she was an Asian, uh, she was Japanese, but the horror show was that there was also to jump ahead an old Jewish fellow, Shlomo, the Trump loving Republican, who really couldn't distinguish between Japanese and Chinese and kept asking her if she knew any good Chinese restaurants. And <laughs> when she like went off on him, he's like, I don't understand. I go to P.F. Chang's. <laughs> oh, it's just, 
it was so more. Do you ever get mortified for somebody else? Yes. Almost yes. like worse than if it was you. Yeah. So there was that going on. And she was with a state policeman who, you know, with my background, which, you know, I am constitutionally and contractually bound to mention heroin in every interview. <laughs> you know, I, I used to do that. So I was, conv- you know, I, you always feel good. It's like, Hitchcock used to say, if there's a cop car following him, he instantly feels guilty of something. So I felt like this guy's got my number. I don't know why. I wasn't doing anything. So that just added to the, the ratcheted up the tension. Okay. As a writer. So we got to Shlomo. And by the way, I want to say about Shlomo, he's an endearing character on the page. And I like the fact that you portrayed him with some compassion because I think it can be easy to take... Uh, a trumper and just kind of caricature him or you know make him the the dope or something but it's more complicated than that this guy is is. uh, from a tough background uh he escaped uh, what was his personal history my own father yeah came over my father came over at 10 and this guy came over for you you know at 10 and he was in a displaced person camp and hadn't been back to poland since and uh you know what happens is it's sort of like that uh, that great uh, Jonathan Swift line, like, I, I loathe mankind, but love every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Like, I, of course, judge these people instantly. Like, what am I in a, you know, 4-H club tour? You know, <laughs> but then I just, I grew to, like, I grew to love them. Yep. And it was very important to me that I didn't come off like some, you know, supercilious douchewad who thought he was better than these other people. Right, right, right. So Tad and Madge from Odessa, Texas. <laughs> yeah, they they were the wise acres, always making jokes, not very good ones, and they were the great people. Which I didn't even know they would let you in to Auschwitz, like wearing the "I'm with stupid" T-shirt, you know, <laughs> and the backwards Astro hat, you know, like dressed for like family fun day at Orlando Disney World, which that was them. That's very yeah. always making the cornball jokes. Very American. Beyond, yeah. Uh, there was Patsy, an Australian millennial. Is that right? She was an Australian millennial, very, very nice young woman who wanted to be kind of risque and always talked about what her and her girls got up to, <laughs> and uh, drank a bit, and really taught me something I've never seen. Which I, I happened to be with her. Uh, I, I think it was in Krakow. She just puked and kept walking right into right into a dustbin. Didn't didn't break stride. And I'm like that. That is a lesson learned the hard way. I mean, she was so graceful. The Australians can drink. They know how to do it. Technicolor rainbow, I believe, is what they call it. <laughs> and then I'm not going to get to everybody, but I want, I want to make sure to mention Douglas and Tito, the professional tour groupers. Yes, they were a lovely gay couple like the Bickersons, which was just fantastic. But they taught me something, which, you know, I always like to write about subgroups and, you know, these sort of subterranean entities that I never knew existed. And apparently tour groups like this by bus, it's a whole world for people who basically aren't rich, but maybe put in their time as teachers or car sales, whatever. And then they get older, they want to travel and they just go from place to place, and it doesn't matter where. So Tito was like, oh, yeah, last week we were uh, in Ireland. Uh, we're doing the death camps this week, and then uh, the Finger Lakes in two weeks. <laughs> it's lovely. You know, it's their world. 
So, okay, so this was your group. And I want to make sure to point out as you go over to Poland and this in Germany and the site of these concentration camps and all of this uh, human horror, that there is still the discomfort of being Jewish in this part of the world. And you describe very well, and often with some dark humor, looking around at people, particularly people of older generations, and wondering about their histories. Oh, absolutely. We're having breakfast in, uh, you know, some buffet in uh, Warsaw, and you can't help but look over and see this guy just giving you total stink eye. And he's like some 95-year-old old bastard, you know, and it's impossible for me not to think, yeah, I know why you're looking at me, because when you were like 18 years old, you were fucking bayoneting Jew babies for fun. <laughs> I know it. You know, I, I just felt like my paranoia, which is there quite often anyway, was 100% justified in this case. Well, and there were, uh, I'm trying to think of what the, there was the incident at the McDonald's where there was a standoff with these anti-Semitic teens. Yes. And then there was also, I believe, at the Schindler factory uh, in the cafe <laughs> afterwards. By the way, I love that there's like, a, there's like a cafe and a snack bar at all of these places. Of Can we just say <laughs> right out of the gate, excuse the digression, but you know, you go to Auschwitz, you want this emotional peak experience, you, you finally enter the grounds, and the first thing you see is the I'm with stupid t-shirt person shoving pizza in their face and slamming a Fanta in the fucking Auschwitz snack bar, which, by the way, is the most ham-centric restaurant or cafe, well, not even a cafe I've ever seen. Not even a nod, you know, to uh, the fact that there may be a Jew or two here. Nothing that was like ham, ham, and more ham. But I'm, th I'm thinking to you, or, or like thinking yeah. uh, along with you, that there shouldn't be any food served at all at these places. Yeah, it, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around. And I, of course, was very judgmental. At the Buchenwald actually has a lovely sit-down <laughs> restaurant. And I was just, I'm walking by, and I'm like looking at these, like, look at you, you fucking, who dare you? And as I was looking at them, I walked into a plate glass window and smashed my face and started bleeding and then had to skulk shamefully by to the uh, Buchenwald men's room for some Buchenwald paper towels so I could make a little Buchenwald, you know, hunk of wet paper towel to tamp my wound and then walk by the people I had just judged. So that that happened. I'm not trying to look good here. But that's what happened. And there's also like a lot of uh, like behavioral comedy, I guess you would call it, but also like it's also psychological. It's like the thought process that you go through when you're in one of these places, which it's sacred ground and it is just, it's so loaded to walk, especially for a Jewish person to walk onto the grounds at Auschwitz. And I really appreciated how you portrayed yourself trying to kind of figure out how to be. And I don't think it's exclusive to you. I think everybody there is sort of trying to figure out how to be. There are a lot of people, I think, as you describe it, just sort of like staring off into the distance, yeah. kind of walking off on their own and like trying to have yeah. a moment. And I think you say at one point, like, it's my first death camp and it feels like I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> I, I would be the same way, I think. Yeah. It's hard to know that you can even kind of 
just conjure up the right emotional response. And it finally occurred to me that like even thinking I can feel something appropriate to the event is wrong. There is no emotion I could have that is worthy. And I just, I left after seeing all of them thinking they should just like put a fence around them and you can like see them from 200 yards, you know, and just let the dead stay dead because it's impossible not to walk around thinking I'm literally tramping on the bones of the dead. That doesn't feel great. No. Well, or the ash, you know, there's the, this course, con- yeah. this, you know, so many uh, bodies cremated in these places and you're describing that process in pretty, I mean, you describe all of it in unsparing detail, like as it should be described, I think. And it's just this kind of haunting feeling that the air might be filled with ash or that you might be stepping on ash. Sure. And all of that, you know, it just kind of makes your skin crawl. And I guess, you know, there's a line in the book that, uh, that I think comes towards the end where you said, you know, I came on this trip just kind of desperately wanting to feel something. And I think this is related to depression and to the feelings that you had around your divorce. You know, your, your ex-wife was leaving California to move back to Texas and taking your young daughter with her. So it was like, there was a lot of grief and you come to this place and on this trip, yeah, it's a magazine gig and yeah, you want to, you know, scratch the itch of your curiosity around all this history that's been with you for a long time. But there's also an emotional aspect to it where you're, you're kind of wanting to, to feel. Maybe there's some numbness. And I'm wondering as you're in these places and you're thinking about these things and you're confronted with these realities, did you feel, did you feel in the way that you hoped you would? I, I don't know what I hoped I would feel, but whatever it was, I didn't feel it. I mean, I had this crackpot notion that I would go there to a place where despair and depression is entirely appropriate. And then I could sort of bring my depression with me and finally there would be a spot on the planet worthy of the depression I already had. But in fact, sort of the inverse happened and the most profound emotion I had, which might sound completely cliched in the rendering, was that nothing I fucking feel matters. None of my problems, none of your problems, her problems, his problems, none of it matters compared to what went on here and what these people went through. And, and a question I had, and I still haven't wrestled it to the ground, is how soon after being dispatched to a death camp or a labor camp or a slave camp, did the individual prisoner, like at what point did their concern over like, uh, you know, their marriage, their career, their money, their looks, their fears, their joys. Like, at what point did all that disappear to be replaced by black and white survival? Yeah, yeah. And you wonder, like, how that would work for us. Yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's it's something I've definitely thought about. Like, how would I? I think a lot. You can't help but ask yourself, like, how would I have responded? to these circumstances where I, where I define myself in them. And there's a line in the book where you're quoting Primo Levi 
Uh, am I pronouncing that right, Primo Levi or Primo Levi? I, I don't never know what it is. I, but. I have been pronouncing it wrong my entire life, and I now realize it. So you're probably right. It, it doubtless is not like the blue jean. It's probably not Levi. Okay, so yeah, probably pre, Levi. Primo Levi. Uh, but he says, uh, uh, and and he survived the camps, but then went on to commit suicide. Correct? Is that the... which happens with a lot of writers who survive the camps? Yes. Yeah. So, but he said, "quote The worst survived." The selfish, the violent, the insensitive, the spies. It was not a certain rule, but it was nevertheless a rule. The yeah. best all died. Yeah. Oh. It's so deep, right? Yeah. And but, then you realize that he survived and years later threw himself off like a stairwell on tour in Italy where he lived because he couldn't deal. He felt survivor's guilt. If that's the word for it, another great writer, Borowski, a Polish writer who wrote This Way for the Gas, ladies and gentlemen, who actually survived, wrote an amazing collection of stories and sketches, uh, This Way for the Gas, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, in the book, I say, put down my book and go get this guy's fucking book. Right. It was so beautiful. He, too, not long afterward, killed himself. And, and you, you just have to wonder... What, what is the psychodynamic going on? I mean, what do, you, what do you think that is? Well, I can only, I mean, I think of what, what's coming to mind as you say this is I've, I'm thinking as a kind of counterpoint of that priest, and I'm forgetting his name, the one who basically gave his own life up yes. to save another. And, you know, I guess as the story goes, you know, they, were, they, they couldn't kill him by starving him as quickly as they wanted to. So then they, they gave him a lethal injection. Is that right? Yes, he, he, and he became the patron saint of addiction because he famously just stuck out his arm and said, go ahead. Yeah, so, so uh, I think of him and I think of all the things, all the horrors that people in the camps had to bear witness to, like unthinkable, unspeakable yeah. horrors. But also, and I say this having read, I mean, my, my Holocaust reading pales in comparison to yours, but I've read Viktor Frankl Sure. Um, you know, you like the Eli Wiesel. Like, you, there's, there are, there's also a lot of humanity in the camps, like course, a, yeah. extraordinary humanity. And so, maybe trying to bridge those divides. Yeah. You know, that's a lot. That's a weird juxtaposition. Like the very worst and the very best in absolute extremis. <laughs> you know, yeah. and having to make sense of the world, having seen that after the fact and having survived it somehow, I can imagine how that would be a, a big weight to carry. Well, we don't know what they had to do to survive, nor can we even surmise or speculate, but whatever it was, it definitely came back to haunt them. And the secret of that priest, whose name starts with a K, I believe, is, I mean, it's, it's the oldest Buddhist lesson there is, which is salvation comes through service, you know? And he just gave his food to people. He, you know, took punishment for somebody else. Literally, he stood, some some young guy had a family and they were going to execute him. And he said, no, you know, take me instead. So he said, it, I'm, he said, I'm old. And he was like, yeah. he was like 47. <laughs> yeah, I can't even remember 47. Whole other issue. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they took him. But all, all you can think is maybe, you know, in that, that, like that Camus biography, you know, a happy death. Maybe in doing so, that redeemed the horror of the experience for him. Yeah. 
it's incredible. I mean, yeah, you, it's sort of impossible to read such a thing or learn of such a thing and not measure yourself against it. That's incredible to give yourself over like that, uh, to give your life for someone else. You wonder if you and, would have the stuff. Yeah. And, and the fun factoid is that uh, Amazon, you know, has little medallions with his, with his picture on it. So you can, uh, you know, just jump right on Amazon and spend <laughs> nine bucks and get a little, uh, you know, they've managed to make money off them, you know, get a little medallion in his honor. So well, I mean, it, it all worked out. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's not just him, you know, they've commodified no. a lot of this stuff and sure. you, you're great about kind of uh, describing the skittishness and the feelings of discomfort that that can make a person feel, you know, the souvenirs, the gift shop, like at one yeah. point, what do you buy? You buy these little wooden, uh, it's like, well, little that was Poland. Yeah. I bought little, little Jews, little Jews. Because, uh, since you bring that up, uh, there is a tradition in Poland where little wooden Jews, uh, the sort of rabbi looking guys clutching a coin. It's considered good luck. If you put them in your house, it's like, you know, a, a, a rabbi in the hall, money in the bank, you know. So the really disturbing part is there are now more little wooden Jews than there are Jew Jews in Poland because all the live flesh and blood ones have been killed. But you can still buy yourself, I guess, I guess it's the Polish equivalent of a lawn jockey. I mean, I, I felt a little morally equivocating by buying them, but then I thought, what the hell? <laughs> Maybe I'll get some money. Well, Maybe, and you, uh, you describe the... They're good stocking stuffers. That's you, you, uh, you describe the numbers, because, I, I, you know, again, my knowledge of this history is not as locked in as it should be, or I wish it were. But at, at some point, you lay down the numbers of Jews killed in Poland and the percentage of them. And I mean, is it, it was like 1.5 million. Am I remembering that right? And then how many were left after the Holocaust? It was was like 83% of the population or, or something like that. And you know, those who have these facts memorized, you can come at me. I'm not good with this, but most of them were killed, you know, and, and the really, the beauty kind of, uh, kicker to that is in Poland. Now, the, the legend, the government passed a law saying if you so much as even imply that Polish people had anything to do with the Holocaust, you will go to jail. Yeah. The level of national denial. It's incredible. Yeah. So that, that's going on even as we speak. Well, and it's not only going on there, you know. Uh, you, yeah. you read these stories or you'll see these They'll take polls, you know, and among younger people who either don't know anything about the Holocaust or question whether or not it actually happened. And that sort of stuff chills me. It just seems so incredible to be that disconnected from reality. Well, I, I can recommend a movie called Denial, which is with De- Deborah Lipstadt, I believe, is the woman who had to sue David Irving, the Holocaust denier you know, for the right to say that, yeah, the Holocaust happened. She had to prove that it happened to a Holocaust denier. It's a great movie with Rachel Wise, which I just happened to see the other day. So if if you're curious, I I don't have a dog in that fight, but just if you're curious about this area, that's something to check out because it is mind-blowing, the amount of people, especially more and more now with QAnon and the rest of it, you know. Mm. So... 
speaking of movies, because there is there's a Hollywood storyline uh, woven throughout this entire book with respect to the work that you do uh, in a, as a writer for the screen. But before we get there, I want to talk about Schindler's List, which I think sure. in, the po- in the popular culture is sort of the way in to uh, the Holocaust and this history for a lot of people. And you have a lot of disdain for this film, which, you know, in the book is, 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 is very funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, and I'm not the only one who says this. I mean, I think David Remnick, you know, a lot, a lot of far more esteemed writers than, than myself will tell you that when you think about it, the fact that this godlike, you know, sort of um, Jew-helping Christian fellow, the great Liam Neeson, you know, he has to come in and save the Jews like a Holocaust Santa Claus, you know, <laughs> because they have no agency of their own, you know, they couldn't have done it on their own. And there is something somewhat, if not despicable, not great about that. He did it, he helped a lot of people, but the way the movie is framed, it makes it look like, you know, you needed the Christian savior. Not a good look. And there's also a scene in the in the movie that you, uh, you talk about that there's another filmmaker, a European filmmaker, I think, who claims that the, the scene was lifted straight from his work, right? Yeah, there's a scene... Uh, which wasn't in the book, and apparently wasn't even in the screenplay, because I know the guy who wrote the movie, Stephen Daly, a terrific guy, great individual, tried to give me a car 40 years ago, nicest guy in the world. Hmm. But this Czech director tried to, wanted to sue, because there is a scene in the movie where I think a bunch of women go into the shower, and they think they're about to get you know, the legendary, oh my God, we're about to be guests. And in fact, it's a shower. And it's like a great scene where it's like, they pull kind of a switch on you. Very dramatic, but it was in his movie. And when he tried to show it to a judge, and the judge said, well, why did you send me the same scene twice? It's like identical. But here is why I I put the story in there, because I always root for the underdog. This poor bastard couldn't afford the hundred grand for a lawyer who said, "Yeah, we could win the suit, but you know, you got to pony up first. So he didn't get it. He didn't get a chance to sue, and you know, died without having made that happen. Uh, you're probably saying, Jerry, what is that director's name? And I will simply tell you, he's a Czech fellow, and don't get old because it affects your memory. <laughs> Well, it's affecting mine too, so I'm yeah. right there with you. But All right. you know, I mentioned it earlier, but I think that this was it's jury something, J U R I something. But anyway, go ahead. I, I want to say that, like this, I, I mentioned earlier the standoff in the McDonald's with the anti-Semitic, yeah. anti-Semitic teens, and wasn't this near the part of the book where you had just toured the Schindler factory? I want to say it might have been yeah, near. But, that. Which is great. The Schindler Museum is amazing. So hats off. What it, what, what about it is so great? They have a collection of memorabilia, and that's where I saw the magazine cover with Hitler portrayed with a big fake beard. And they they make it so when you walk in, you're like trudging over this difficult path, and they portray the Jews who survived as like white sort of white shades, you know, like white ghosts, which I'm probably not doing justice to in the telling but it's it's very very haunting 
and just they really I think they have uh, Roman Polanski's card you know saying that like he's a little Jew who will you know it has to register and they really you know seeing the mundane details like the cards from the professors who were no longer allowed to teach because they're Jewish and are just thrown into the cold. And the specificity that this museum captures is very, it's heart-wrenching. So I can't say enough good things about it. And then the McDonald's situation, because like this was jarring to me because it's it's real and it's in the present day and it's like the embodiment of all of this evil in contemporary terms. You go into McDonald's and there are these anti-Semitic teens who start giving you shit? Yeah, they start giving me shit. Well, I thought they were in a soccer club. You know, they had like a green and white, which turns out are these nationalistic colors. I think it's like the White Eagles, which, you know, I'm such a boo. I think, oh, they're like, you know, football guys. And it turns out they're members of this anti-Semitic, nationalistic, Polish society, not unlike, say, the Proud Boys. And they start giving me shit. And me, because I am such a tough guy and think so fast on my feet. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, fellas. I'm just a guy taking pictures of McDonald's. That's what I do. I go around the world and just photograph different McDonald's, you know, thinking on my feet, you know. And and they start pushing me around, and uh, I'm outnumbered. And who comes rolling up behind me but Shlomo, of all people, this octogenarian, Trump-loving old little guy with the mom jeans that come up to his nipples, you know, all look, you know, and, and he says something in Polish, which is so vicious and jarring to these guys, like, and he like backed off, and I'm like, what the hell did you say? And he goes, I, there's no translation in English. I'm like, no, come on, man, it's not translation. And it was something like toilet sponge that soaks up the urine of cripple. I mean, it was just like this grotesque, <laughs> very Polish-specific insult, which backed these fucking guys off. Interesting. But I do want to say one more thing about Schindler. What the tour guide told me was that, great as that museum was, over the years, and in, in her experience, more people wanted to see the hotel where the stars of Schindler's List stayed while in country than actually wanted to see the factory where Schindler, you know, made his list. That doesn't, like, that's depressing. It doesn't surprise me. No, I mean, it's a celebrity culture. It's a celebrity culture. Another fun fact. Speaking of Hollywood and celebrity, there's a very funny narrative subplot where you have published a, a book that precedes this one called OG Dad. Uh, which is short for old guy dad. Yeah. And and this is all real, you know, and then, and then you, uh, you know, it's about your, you know, your experiences of becoming a father at a, at an older age than I guess traditionally we think of uh, fathers or whatever. And then you, uh, you go on Mark Maron's podcast uh, to talk about it. And as a result, the book gets optioned and you're hired to put together a television show based on it. Meanwhile, your marriage to the mother of your young daughter falls apart, <laughs> and you are then charged with having to write kind of a happy yeah. sitcom sanitized version of your story, which I can imagine, you know, depressed from a divorce and just kind of <laughs> reeling 
it's yeah. just it's a comedy i mean it's a dark comedy but it's funny to think about and you do a great job of depicting it well and... it's everything i deserve for selling to abc <laughs> so ultimately just the end cut right to the end of the story i'm getting messages as i'm staggering out of the ovens at auschwitz like stupidly picking up the phone can you make jerry less creepy <laughs> so that's happening and but they had never read the book because i read the book when you can hear the podcast and the book is dark and fucked up even though it's kind of happy and they were just horrified on nine kinds of levels so i thought i would save the day with a why don't we make it about a guy making a movie about ilsa she wolf of the ss which is the first Nazi exploitation film about the real-life Ilsa Koch, who is this monster married to the commandant of, uh, of uh, Buchenwald. And uh, I can talk about how it was shot on weekends on the set of Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> it'll be great. And the guy's like, where are I? I'm like, yeah, I'm at Buchenwald. And he's like, Bloomingdale? <laughs> it, just, it, just, it just spiraled. And then the self-hate... And then the fact that you're thinking this while at a camp, which you shouldn't be thinking about, but you know, we're human. And uh, it, it, it's adventures and mortification. It was so funny to read for me as somebody who lives in LA and has like just dabbled a little bit in that world. And have, have you dabbled in that world? What has your experience been? Just dabble. I sold a show a few years ago. It never went, but like, you know, went through all the meetings and had the water, yeah. the water bottles and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> The water um, bottle. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but, you know, I think that the way that I, like, as I kind of continued on that thread in the book, what it made me realize about 999 is that this book feels like this is the story you really wanted to tell in the show. Yeah. It was like you almost like cleansing your palate of that ABC experience. Like, this is you being yourself. This is you being real on the page versus writing the sanitized version for ABC, which is not, you know, like there's no shame in the game for trying to write a sitcom. But, you know, Jerry, you strike me as a guy who's wired. You can only really be yourself ultimately. Yeah. You try to sell out and you just fucking can't. Yeah. So, uh, didn't work out. I was ultimately paid not to write it, which is <laughs> a hell of a way to make a living. I paid more money in Hollywood being paid not to write. So I recommend that to the kids out there <laughs> who have a dream. <laughs> um, but then there's also another great scene along these lines. I want to say Johnny Depp. Were you hired to write The Thin Man or you were in talks to write a movie called The Thin Man? Hired to uh, the most coveted job in Hollywood was to write the remake of The Thin Man and Depp, who owns one of my books in perpetuity, the perpetually soon to be never made I Fatty. Right. Uh, he, he brought me in to do this. And uh, I think this is the story you're alluding to. I'm, I'm taking a meeting in Malibu with his <laughs> high-end director and just, because I'm a little nervous, I'm a bit of a self-deprecator under pressure. I'm like, whoa, guys, I couldn't plot my way from here to my car. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, a hush descends from the Pacific Ocean on. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, could I just reel that back? Anyway, that was the beginning of the end. And again, paid not to write quite lucratively. Good for so, you. Yeah. There's a 
as a theme. Well, I can relate. I could. I can just relate to being in. Oh, a... you've never fucked anything up. Come on. Oh, <laughs> yes. Just being in a meeting and saying the wrong thing. I think so many of us, whether it's a Hollywood meeting or something else, but for a certain kind of person who can't not say what they're thinking or can't not say the truth, you know, or, or has like that self-deprecatory tendency under pressure. I just related to it so, so much. And it's also funny as hell. You know, I could totally. Well, I, I blurted, you yeah. know, I, I blurted, but you know, it, it put me in mind of that famous Jerry Lewis anecdote. I don't know if you know, the reason I love Jerry Lewis is because when he took a meeting, he would purposely forget his attache case after every meeting and then he would like come back 15 minutes later. But what it was, was a tape recorder. So he would record what people really said about him after he left, when he would come back and, you know, tootle in and get his quote unquote attache case. I don't know if I would want to know. I think that's the most horrifying thing in the world, right? I mean, who would want to know? Bad enough. Yeah, right. <laughs> so just to get back to the tour that you were on, uh, there are great descriptions. I mean, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier with the with the Texans from Odessa, the kind of people who wear their Houston Astros hats on backwards and their uh, I'm with stupid t-shirts on into the camps or whatever on these tours. But this and was, little shorty shorts too, just like, you know, snug little short shorts. But th this, was, uh, this was not uncommon. I mean, there's a funny... There's a funny description. You have somebody in a Megadeth T-shirt at Auschwitz, which is yeah. a bit much. <laughs> it's a little on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> but then also, you know, you talk about the people trying to sort out their own behavior and like trying to, I think, in a kind of forced way almost, have that big experience because you sort of feel like you're supposed to. Exactly. You're, you're supposed to have some kind of reckoning and then you get there and you can't really summon it. And people respond to that in different ways. And you do a great job of talking about, you know, you're kind of looking around at people and noticing that people are laughing, people are texting, people are wearing insensitive T-shirts that they haven't thought twice about. It's just a weird, I mean, it's a heavy tour to be on, but it's also a tour that exposes you to some strange particulars of human psychology and human behavior. Like you can't, you you have to react. You ha like visiting a concentration camp demands of you a response, and yet, like you kind of said earlier, you know, it's never the response that you think you're going to have, or the one that you feel like you're supposed to have. Well, a large part of that response for many people, and why not, was a, a concentration camp selfie. So. Uh, there was just nonstop selfie taking. And I think, you know, there's the anecdote in the book where I get called over to these young Filipina young women who just shout, Grandma, Grandma. And they think that I am Michael Richard, that I'm Kramer. And I, I try to say, no, no, I'm not. But it, it's such a big drama that I make the truly hellacious decision to go take a selfie as a celebrity, I'm not even, and, you know, with my arms around them and they're like thumb and, you know, thumbs up. And, you know, I realize as I'm doing this, doing the fake Kramer selfie that all these people I just met on my tour are like looking at me like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? You know? And uh, it just spiraled. But would you take a selfie? I, yeah. you know, I don't, 
you never know until you're there. I think I would be reticent. I would maybe take pictures. I think I would be, I would imagine myself being closed off, like kind of yeah. shut down, quiet. Yeah. Uh, you know, I cannot imagine myself being too irreverent, but I can't imagine myself having like weird little psychodramas, you know, where I'm sure. neurotically obsessing about how I'm supposed to be behaving, you know, and what am I supposed to be thinking and feeling? And you just sort of get in your own head about that kind of thing. And like you said in your book, you feel like you're doing it wrong. Well, what I had to realize ultimately is you're not visiting hell. You're visiting a museum of hell. So if people want to behave that way, to them, they might as well be, you know, at the American, you know, Natural History Museum or something in New York City. And it's just, who am I to judge? I try not to be judgmental, but at the same time, it is hard not to be horrified. And, you know, the fact that they need to post signs upon entering Auschwitz, no Pokemon, you know, I mean, <laughs> what else do you need to know about the human race? Yeah, yeah. Well, and the, there's another aspect to these tours that I found moving and disturbing, which is to kind of see the camps through your eyes and to notice what you in particular notice, which is not always the thing that one might expect. And, you know, they're kind of like these, how do you put it, more prominent, more kind of expected aspects of the camps, sites on the camp, you know, within the camps themselves that you would sort of uh, expect yourself to respond to. And yet, it's like these little details that haunt you the most. Like, what were some of them? I'm thinking of the hooks in the ceiling. The hooks in the ceiling, yeah. And I, I believe that was Dachau, don't quote me, which is, you're, there's an oven, and, and, you know, where they put the dead bodies. But what they do here is there's a hook on the ceiling, so they literally hang you in front of the oven, which you are going to go into after they have hung you. So that that destroyed me. But the truly mundane things are what really, really got to me and, and rendered me speechless, which is like, there's like a, a two-ton ball of hair at Auschwitz, which is just from all, all the hair and shape. And, and the shoes, there's just a room that is nothing but shoes. There's a room nothing but eyeglasses. And there's something about these, these, these mundane kind of quotidian little details that destroyed me in a way more than the sort of bigger renderings, you know, and uh, Auschwitz is very basic, very lo-fi. Buchenwald, a little more, I don't want to say special effects, but you know, where you press things and videos play and all this. But for me, it was the basic, just on the ground, in your face, unembellished thing that destroyed me. And it always makes you, like Holocaust literature, Holocaust movies, Holocaust tourism, whatever you want to call it, always makes you contemplate like human evil, the human capacity for evil. And I think in your book, the person who embodied this the most for me was uh, 
the aforementioned Ilsa Koch, mm-hmm. who I have to I have to confess I was on her Wikipedia reading up on her. Uh, I was not familiar uh, with the wife of the what did you the commandant of Buchenwald? Mm-hmm. Yes, just a twisted human being. Beyond, I mean, where do you begin? She would ride around half naked, on like a white horse, picking prisoners she wanted to bed. But at the same time, if anybody looked at her, they were taken out and killed. So what do you do? So she would bring these guys in, sleep with them, kill them. And, and weirder, she had an obsession with tattoos. So if she saw tattoos that she admired, these, these people would be skinned. And she gave as Christmas, fun Christmas presents, she would give wallets made from human skin. I mean, you know, all the archetypal jokes about lampshades, you know, guess what? They had that in Nuremberg. Those things are real. Yeah. And that's the creepiest detail. Everybody look at their thumb. They would make light switches from like thumb bones, you know, another, another stock and stuff or courtesy of Ilsa. She will of the SS. And I gotta, I gotta ask too. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. this, but her name's Ilsa Koch, K O C H. Any relation to the Koch family in the, in the United States? The uh... how could it not be? I'm probably sniffing a lawsuit right now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if 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 she's not, would that she is? Maybe spiritually, right? You know, somewhere in the recesses of time, the the Koch started out and branched. You know. So how long were you on this tour? This was like a couple weeks? Yeah, about 19 days, I believe. And then came home. Was yeah. it like like as like the I'm curious to know more about like the emotional toll that the tour took on you like with the accumulated visits to the the Schindler Museum, to the Buchenwald Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. Like as you go from camp to camp, does it get easier? Or does it wear you out? You know, do you find yourself just depleted at a certain point? It, it, there's levels. Like on some level, by like day eight, you're thinking, well, this is my job. You know, get up, get my luggage, put it in the side of the bus, and go to a camp. But on another level, I, I don't know how you are with major emotion. I tend not to feel emotions. I will just drive into a utility pole. You know, <laughs> I will just sublimate and then it will come out in some weird way where, you know, I will snap at the plumber. You know, I mean, I, I just don't seem to have enough mental health where I, I can, like, appropriately feel what I'm supposed to feel. Yeah, I mean, I have that for sure where, you know, it gets misdirected or something. It comes out at a weird time in, in a way that's, like, disproportionate, you know. Made me love my kids more, I'll tell you that. I mean, not to get all hokey, but, you know, it's just, you just realize the fragility, and, you know, this is not the most original insight, folks, but you just realize the fragility of life. Not only that our lives are fragile, but that in the blink of an eye, the world can turn. Mm-hmm. We make jokes about Trump or the guy running for governor of Pennsylvania or DeSantis, but, you know, this shit could happen. And to me, it's all in the mail. And, it makes you, you know, like I say at the end of the book, it's it's the time between holocausts that is the exception. Mm. Because the norm somewhere 
whether it's Yemen or whether it's, you know, this country at the start of uh, America, you know, somewhere, somehow people are being genocided and you just have to fucking have some gratitude for the time you got. Well, yeah, you know, you mentioned your, your kids and that's another, that's another narrative through line to the book is this love that you have for your kids. And I think every parent has like a complicated relationship with their own parenthood, uh, their own, the, the, the own, the job that they've done as a, you know, as a father, I relate to that, you know, where you're kind of evaluating yourself and you're feeling a certain degree of sorrow for the things that you might've screwed up, uh, you know, who hasn't felt that? Who has a child? It's a, it's a big job. It's maybe too big yeah. for anyone. <laughs> yeah. I, my, my theory of child rearing is try to fuck them up in the opposite way. You were fucked up. And maybe <laughs> if you're lucky, it will land in the middle. <laughs> Where, you know? What was that poem? There's a great, I don't know if you have it like off your memory, but what was the, it was oh, like a Philip Larkin poem or something? Philip Larkin, they fuck you up. I, I think the essence of that poem is they fuck you up, but he has a better rhyme scheme. Yeah, I no, I love that. Forgive me I'll, for not having, I should have that memorized. I, well, I, I want, I, me too. Me, me too. I wanted to, after I read it, I was like, I want to commit this to memory so I can like it's break like, it out at they parties. Fuck you out, they fuck you up, your mom and dad, something, something, something bad, you know, <laughs> that effect. But right. English majors out there are rolling their eyes and shunning me. <laughs> well, All apologies. Me as well. Well, it's a great book and it's a different kind of angle on this turf, you know, because it's funny and funny and the Holocaust don't often go together. And I think there can even be, you know, I've heard it expressed before in the culture where it's like, there should never be anything funny about the Holocaust in our culture. You know, maybe Spielberg. Well, it, it, funny about the Holocaust. Right, right. But I mean, like, it's my defense. This right. isn't life is beautiful. It's not that. Right. Oh. Right. Well, that's the point is that, you know, like, it's, it's, it's funny at the level of like, self deprecatory. It's funny at the level of like personal pain and failure. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're sort of the comic tramp in this story. That's one way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, yeah. you, you know, my, my theory of journalism is always make yourself the biggest asshole, you know, so it's, you know, for, again, for the kids going to J school, that's all you need to know <laughs> on, on a certain level. And the comedy comes from all these sort of, you can say inappropriate or you can say natural human nature, all the behavior around, above and underneath and alongside with the Holocaust and the camps. Yeah, but the the writing about the camps themselves and the history, the historical uh, you know writing is bracing and and direct. It's not there's no jokes there. So it's an interesting juxtaposition, and I really loved it. And I have to note too. I always ask writers this when I think of it because I noticed in the acknowledgments that you dedicate the the book to the memory of Stuart Kornfeld. Who's Stuart? Stuart Kornfeld was a guy. Uh, he was a movie guy. He ran Ben Stiller's company for a while, uh, and he uh, he started out working with Mel Brooks. And he was just a very human guy who I went through. He had cancer, and it lasted a long time. And because I'm a guy who never sleeps, I could get the phone call at three in the morning when he was at some just ungodly ward in Philadelphia, getting more radiation literally than any human ever has 
And I, I just, you know, we became very close. So, you know, I felt privileged to go through this. So he was a producer, movie guy, gave a lot of people their start. He, he's the guy responsible for, like, Mel Brooks getting David Lynch to do Elephant Man, for example. You know, not name dropping here. This is just who the guy was. Very humble dude, but, you know, one of my best friends. Mm. And, and he died, like, during the writing of the book. Well, I loved it, and I'm so grateful for the time and to have had the chance to talk to you about it. Congratulations. No book is easy to write, you know, and this one, I don't know, it feels hard won, and uh, I'm glad you saw it through. Well, at some point it becomes harder not to write, so I hope, I hope you can't relate. But thank you, man. It was, it's such a privilege. It's such a great interviewer, so thank you. Okay, folks, that was Jerry Stahl. And his new memoir is called 999, One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. It is available now from Akashic Books. You can find Jerry Stahl on social media. He's on Twitter, at SomeJerryStahl. And on Instagram, his handle is also, at SomeJerryStahl. One more time. The new book is called 999, out there now on Akashic. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. We're almost up to 800 episodes and counting. The entire archive is made available to listeners free of charge. Let's keep it free, shall we? I'm counting on listener support. If you listen regularly, if you like the program, you can support the program at Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash other ppl pod you can support the show for as little as one dollar a month i've tried to make it as easy as possible so throw a buck in the hat every month throw three dollars five ten twenty whatever you want as you move up the scale you can get stuff a t-shirt a tote bag like other people gear you know book club subscription uh, i will write you a postcard coffee mug did i say that already that kind of stuff over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod my new novel be brief and tell them everything was published back in may it's available in trade paperback ebook and audiobook editions i am the narrator of the audiobook If you would like to read my new novel, you can do that one more time. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. If you have something to say, if you want to give me some feedback, the email address for the podcast is letters at otherppl.com. The Other People podcast also has its own official app. Were you aware of this? The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's available wherever you get your apps. Go get the app. It's a good app. It's free. Don't forget to sign up for the email newsletter over at otherppl.com or at bradlisty.com. Same newsletter, both places. It's free, comes out once a week. I will not barrage you with emails. The Other People podcast also has its own YouTube channel. So if you're a YouTube person, if you want to listen on YouTube, just go over to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and then hit the subscribe button. It's free. All right, so great episode, great talk with Jerry Stahl. Next week on the podcast, my guest is Elizabeth Strout, Pulitzer Prize winner. She's got a new novel out 
called Lucy by the Sea. Great talk with her. Excited to share that one with you. So stay tuned.